0: EM Board Bombs Now, here's Drs. Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast I am your host, co-founder, chief editor, Blake Briggs Here at EM Board Bombs, we help you study for boards, but in reality, we help you study for EM life That's hashtag EM life one rapid podcast at a time. I'm not joined today by Dr. Hussein. Don't worry, he hasn't been fired. He's still around. We'll get to him in a second. For each 15-minute episode, you gain high-yield board knowledge. As you like to say, "Come for the stems, stay for the content." You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at emboarbombs. The usual, or the huge, as people say. <laughs> And thank you again for tuning in. Dr. Hussein will not be joining us today. He's actually on a hype tour in preparation for ASEP 22, which is the first week of October. Nice little plug for that in San Francisco. Ian Borbombs will be hosting multiple speakers on our podcast there. It's pretty awesome. We're looking forward to it. But Iltafot decided to make a hype trip after following multiple travel accounts on Instagram, he got carried away, he's got some serious FOMO, and he's out touring the country. So let's dive into today's topic. We have a 27-year-old male presenting to the ED with complaints of vomiting blood. He states he has had epigastric pain, and he's had it for about a day, and he's had at least five episodes of retching with bright red blood present in his vomitus that began early morning. He denies any other medical or surgical problems. He states he actually thinks this is from a recent Capri Sun recall. When you ask what he means by this, he shows you the news report from the prior week where over 5,000 Capri Sun drinks were actually recalled due to being contaminated with cleaning solution. Not sure what the cleaning solution was. I didn't read that far into the news report when I wrote this question. Anyway, he then proceeds to tell you that Aquafina and Deer Park are also in the conspiracy. However, when you ask him his social history, he says, oh yeah, well, I drank at least six beers last night, but that has nothing to do with this. Capri Sun is what I'm worried about. All right, so what medication is the best next step for this patient? We got choice A, octreotide, choice B, ceftraxone, choice C, Pantoprazole, and choice D, GI cocktail. Of your choice, of course. choice. C is a correct answer here, pantoprazole. Before we get into the answer choices and our topic of the day, again, this is EM Board Bombs, and where would we be without mentioning EM Rapid Bombs? Our premium podcast, we have to plug it. If you enjoy EM Board Bombs want a TikTok version of the podcast, that's what our Rapid Bombs is for. We prepare you for boards in clinical practice. Don't waste your time studying just for the boards. Do both at the same time. So Unlike other EM study resources, our premium podcast is the only one that downloads to your favorite podcast player on your smartphone. In other words, you can use whatever podcast app you want, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any other, you know, insert Android thing here, EM Rapid Bombs will download directly to your app of choice. There's no need to download some separate clunky app that has its own login codes and crashes every time you attempt to listen or it's down for maintenance or whatever, just like my EMR is at my hospital pretty much every night shift I happen to work. Anyway, we have over 260 episodes and counting on EM rabbit bombs. Each episode's just two to four minutes. We drop high yield bombs. On average, we drop three to four episodes a week. You get a new podcast delivered to you almost daily. But don't waste your time studying for the test with traditional question banks. Those are great, but you wanna optimize your life. So optimize your time by listening to our board pearls that'll help you with the test, but more importantly, with life. So how do you sign up? You go to emrapidbombs.supercast.com, and you look at the show notes of this podcast. There's a direct link. All right, so like I said, we're getting into the topic here of upper GI bleed. So when you're approaching a patient who is bleeding from the GI tract, especially the upper GI tract, it's important to consider two things. One, their airway, obviously. And two, where the bleeding is coming from. Of course, this involves determining if it's from the upper or lower GI tract. Now, the vast majority of GI bleeds are upper. So when in doubt, suspect upper. So presentation here, upper GI bleed, we think melana, hematemesis, either frank blood or coffee ground. Of course, lower GI bleed, you think more hematochesia, rarely hematemesis, very rarely. 90% of melana, which is dark, tarry stool due to digestive blood. Once you smell it, you'll never forget it. This originates from the upper GI tract 90% of the time. However, hematochesia Bright red or maroon blood, and that's you know fresh blood. It can come from an upper GI bleed source, so keep that in mind. Just because you see bright red blood, does not mean it can never be an upper GI bleed. However, that almost always means it has to be a massive one, right? If you have blood transiting the GI tract that quickly, like 22 feet or so of intestines, that's uh, really speedily getting down there. So these patients are not just going to be texting on their phone; they're going to be hemodynamically unstable from the rapid amount of blood loss. So these are the top five causes of upper GI bleed with the number one most common followed by a whole host of the other top four. Now I'm going to give you 10 seconds to name these in your head. Now if you're in a public place in a coffee shop or in your car or in the dog park or something, I want you to name these out loud and I want to see if people give you a weird look. All right, I didn't want to give you 10 seconds because <laughs> I do not want to have you being too embarrassed if you're in a public place. So. Peptic ulcer disease is the number one cause of upper GI bleeds, especially in the United States. And then the other four in no particular order would be gastritis, varices, cancers, and the Mallory Weiss tears. So what are we doing here with GI bleeds? Well, you're going to use your usual HPI skills and ask standard questions like how much bleeding they've had, how long has it been going on, you know, pertinent positives such as abdominal pain, uh, any bowel movement changes, right? Ask about their stool, ask about if it's diarrhea or formed or loose or just frank blood. Ask about if it's bright red blood or dark and tarry. If they ask if there's any clots present, you know. Ask if it's painful bowel movements, etc. So one important question is has this happened before? I know <laughs> I know almost all medicine can be solved by asking patients, has this happened before? Because things repeat so much. Well that's the same for GI bleeds. Like 60% or so of previous GI bleeders can rebleed from the same lesion. So we'll keep that in mind. Something we forget about here is medication history. We're really bad about that in the emergency room, but here it's really important, right? We talk about NSAIDs, if aspirin, even steroids can be a risk factor for ulcers, right? And of course, anticoagulants. Very important to ask. There's one other here, and you know it especially if you're in the United States, especially the southeastern United States, goodies powder. <laughs> goodies powder and BC powder. That is something you will learn if you move to the southern United States. It's in other parts of the US too, but... It is a classic, classic cause of ulcers. And what goodies and BC powder is? It is like a Kool-Aid powder of NSAIDs, and there is no dose regulation here. Oh yeah! When you talk to some patients, how much they take? They're like, "Oh, I pulled the, I poured the whole bag into my cup of Coke or tea or something." You're like, "What the heck?" Sounds awful. Um it works wonders for certain people, but it does not work wonders on the stomach lining. There's actually a Reddit page, uh subreddit page I guess, Ask Docs, and it's people just asking how much goodies powder they can take during a day, and they're not being modest. <laughs> There's this one guy who said he takes like ten to fifteen single packets of goodies cool orange powder a day. Let's just review what's in Goodies Cool Orange Powder. It has 325 milligrams of acetaminophen. Okay, not too bad, right? 500 milligrams of aspirin and then 65 milligrams of caffeine. And the caffeine directions state that you can take up to four packets a day. That's four times 500 milligrams of aspirin. That's insane. (laughs) So just think about that and what patients are potentially taking. What about H. pylori diagnosis? You know, that's another thing to ask about any history of malignancy, of course, and of course, use of alcohol, you know, looking for signs of cirrhosis, uh, piecing together their social history. So you always want to repeat vitals often on these patients. You know, they may come in saying, yeah, I vomited like five times, and they look fine. And then you come back half an hour later, and then they're you know, tachycardic or they're hypotensive. So always recheck the vitals. Hypotension can be a late sign, especially in young patients. Right, They have that higher reserve that they could uh, end up a little bit worse for wear later on during their stay in the ED. You're going to do a rectal exam. Uh, Yes, the reliability of hemocults is pretty bad. It's pretty awful. But you're going to do it anyway. You're going to do a rectal exam to check for gross blood in the rectal vault. What about NG tubes? That's probably the first, you know, diagnostic step that was taught previously. And we're about to cover one of my favorite segments on the podcast. Things we do that don't make any sense, but we seem to do them anyway. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Well, minimal evidence supports their usage, and thankfully we're getting away from that. Many studies have agreed that they're about 66% accurate, and even up to 15% of patients with an active upper GI bleed will have a negative NG tube diagnostic test. So what's the point of them? Well, the whole point was that you're supposed to insert it in a G-tube, and if you, you know, had return of coffee or or frank blood or whatever, that was a positive test for an upper GI bleed, right? Well, the problem is, is that they're, they're just not that accurate. Um, they also have been used in the past to lavage the stomach prior to EGD to improve visualization. And they've just not been shown to significantly help with this. And in general, most societies, including merchant medicine, don't recommend their usage. Thankfully, they're falling out of favor. Right when I was starting, we were still kind of talking about using them, yes or no. And for the most part, I haven't seen them even talked about in, among residents or students, thankfully, in recent years. So it sounds like they're going away. Uh, let's hope. So let's talk more about scary GI bleeds, things that keep you up at night. So unstable upper GI bleeds are some critical caveats of management. I want to focus the rest of our time talking about that. You know, it goes without saying large bore IV access is required. Don't hesitate placing IO access if you've got a critically ill patient in extremis in front of you and, you know, go ahead and do IOs, right? If you've got some time on your hands and the nurses are, are, are struggling to put some IVs in because they're just, your veins are so flat or they're so dehydrated, they're really sick, you can always put an ultrasound guided 14 or 16 gauges. But here's where you don't do central lines, right? Basically, for all intents and purposes, these patients are in hemorrhagic shock. and hemorrhagic shock, patients are going to need rapid resuscitation, but not too rapid. <laughs> not over transfusion, we'll talk about that in a second. So what? Comes before this would be airway assessment, right? Intubation should be performed in those with ongoing large volume hematemesis or altered respirations or mental status. Yeah, that's a textbook answer. But in reality, we intubate too many of these people. Elective endotracheal intubation has been associated with worse outcomes. So it shouldn't be performed for all patients with hematemesis. So you want to intubate those who are high risk for aspiration, including those with altered mental status, worsening respiratory drive, even though you've optimized it or tried to. Or just massive upper GI bleed like varices. Those patients are just going to get intubated, let's be honest. Variceal bleeds are so scary, those patients almost always get intubated, and you should be aggressive about that. All right, so resuscitation shouldn't be delayed just based on hemoglobin. Another pet peeve of mine is using hemoglobin to guide resuscitation. That's absurd. Don't wait for hemoglobin. This doesn't reflect acute blood loss. Enough said on that. What about transfusion? We talked about that earlier about over-transfusion. So over-transfusion promotes more bleeding in variceal patients, It also may lead to higher mortality in all types of upper GI bleed patients. So your target hemoglobin should be less than 9, less than 8 if it's CHF, and you want to be quick to activate MTP in those requiring multiple blood products. Something we forget about. We always think about MTP in trauma patients, but we should think about it in these patients too. You should also give, you know, FFP, platelets, after every four units of PRBCs, you know, your usual hospital facilities, standard MTP arrangement. You want to target a platelet level? greater than 50,000, and you're also going to really strongly consider reversing people's anticoagulation. Of course, if you can, if you're at a large center and you can have these conversations with you know the family, if they're at bedside or the patient, and the patient's specialists, if they're at the hospital or a specialist team, whoever's on call, you know, cardiology or neurology, whatever, whoever is managing the anticoagulation, you need to have a conversation with them. If you can, if you don't, and the patient's in extremis and they're bleeding out and they're an unstable GI bleed, yeah, you're going to reverse them you're going to give prothrombin complex concentrate if, you know, their INR is greater than 2 or they're on Coumadin, right? Um, Kcentra would be the brand name of that or any 3 or 4-factor PCC. So what are markers of ongoing resuscitation? Well, BUN, which is increased at 24 hours compared to baseline, that's a predictor of poor outcomes. Not good. Likely a reflection of poor resuscitation. So as with hemodynamically stable patients, Everyone gets an IV PPI. This is one of those things where it's never the wrong answer. <laughs> if, when I have med students and we're going over upper GI bleed, you know, algorithm, um, diagnostic and management algorithm, and I say, okay, what's the first thing you give? And the answer is always IV PPI, and they're not wrong. I always give them a gold star. And everyone will need endoscopy eventually. The time frame though differs on patients. Some patients undergo EGD with, you know, within a few hours. Some go within 24 hours. We're not going to get into that, right? The evidence is controversial on that subject. And, you know, one study showed early EGD was actually associated with increased mortality. However, this is likely poor resuscitation, you know, attribution. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is you're never going to be tested on that, on when they should go to EGD. The point is is that you're going to be tested on your resuscitation skills, right? The emphasis is on proper resuscitation in those with any type of upper GI bleed and determining to do EGD at a reasonable time frame. Of course, this is different for variceal bleed patients. Again, no point in you learning that specifically. Just coordinate well with your GI colleagues. All right, what about H2 blockers? Don't ever give them. They're not been shown to lower the rate of ulcerary bleeding. They shouldn't be used. There's this whole argument. They say, oh, well, they work faster than IV PPIs. Silly. Don't give them. Don't even bother. They haven't been shown to be helpful. So an IV PPI, which is like pantoprazole or omeprazole, they're the only two IV options in the U.S. That's what you use. PPIs are wonder drugs. Um, I think they're fantastic, unless you have C. diff. <laughs> they dramatically reduce the rates of rebleeding, and they promote hemostasis in patients with lesions other than ulcers, likely to do acid suppression, you know, subsequent clot stabilization, but they're fantastic drugs. What about prokinetics? And you're asking me, what are prokinetics? And then I say, oh, it's erythmyosin and medical You're like, oh, yeah, those, those things. <laughs> Those two drugs can be given to improve gastric emptying, and therefore they enhance EGD visualizations. This is reasonable to give, and you're helping your GI colleagues out. You can give it, you know, anytime 30 to 90 minutes prior to EGD to help the visualization of those scopes. What about TXA? Well, TXA is, you know, the famous and very controversial anti and it's been extensively studied in other areas of emergency medicine. It has not been shown to be beneficial here in the case of GI bleeds, and it should not be given. All right, let's talk about why the other answers are wrong, and we'll wrap things up. So, octreotide—that was choice A. Well, this patient is not having a variceal bleed. You can judge it by the fact that he's talking, he's sitting up, he's only had five episodes of vomiting, and he's had a night of been drinking the night before. He does not have cirrhosis. He's young. He's 27, and he doesn't have variceal bleed. Let's just be real here. So, octreotide is not going to help him. Octreotide is given to variceal bleed patients. And it works by reducing portal venous pressure. It's given as a bolus, then a drip. I'm honestly not a big fan of it. I, I really kind of cringe every time it's given. I'm just, I've never really got on to the fact that it's a really great drug. It's never been shown to lower mortality. It's limited to cases where EGD is not immediately available. It's given so much when it's clearly not a she'll bleed. And then some people make the argument of, well, it's better be safe than sorry. And I'm like, well... We can't do that all the time. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. The point is, is that it's not that good. It's talked about a lot. Yes, we give it in variceal bleeds. Yes, I understand it might have a role. Uh, However, it doesn't really change that much of the plan in a lot of cases. Antibiotics, which was choice B, ceftraxone. So antibiotics are fantastic in variceal bleeding. You know, bacterial infections are really scary. They're associated with up to 20% of patients with cirrhosis, and up to 50% of patients will develop an infection while in the hospital if they have a variceal bleed. That's inc- an that's incredible statistic. So it's recommended that you give prophylactic antibiotics, usually as ceftraxone. They can reduce re and they can reduce infectious complications. However, this patient, again, does not have a variceal bleed. He would not benefit from this. In a night of binge drinking, he likely has either an ulcer or gastritis or a Mallory-Weiss tear, which is the most likely answer, really, an incomplete esophageal tear with some bleeding. Choice DGI cocktail. Well, that was wrong for some pretty obvious reasons. And uh, in patients who are actively vomiting by shouldn't give a GI cocktail to them, it's not gonna be very effective. Alright, so let's wrap this up. That's another board bomb delivered again. Check out our premium rapid bombs podcast. You can go to emrapidbombs.supercast.com. You can also go to the show notes of this podcast to check out the link to EM Rapid Bombs. And of course, a third option. You can find the link on EM or Bombs, our main website. Click on the link at the top of the page. Check out EM Rapid Bombs. Subscribe to the podcast. I know we've had a lot of not just doctors, you know, residents attendings, even med students listening, but we've had other healthcare professionals listen recently. I've had a lot of ED nurses I know sign up recently. I really appreciate it. Big shout out to them. I have a couple of respiratory therapists and you know other people that are on the team in the ED really appreciate you. And if you're listening, Thank you so much for what you do every day. You're awesome. We'll join you next week for more Ian e. Borbombs action. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.